0: Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the Virtual Cecil Moment Wrap-Up for Saturday, October 29th, 2022. You may recall that I mentioned earlier this week that the Friday episode would be delayed because of a conflict that I had. And since I knew I would not be able to make it to the studio office, I wanted to hold off and produce a more quality episode as opposed to trying to do it remotely on my phone. So here we are today. Our first article comes from abc.net.au down in Australia. Optus and Metabank hacks prompt governments to increase fines from massive data breaches to a minimum of $50 million, assuming that that's Australian dollars. Now, you might recall that the maximum of fines was prior, and and still is actually until this is enacted, $2.2 million. And the problem is, is that some businesses, particularly the larger ones, will see this as just a cost of doing business. So they're not incentivized to actually do more to boost the security of their systems if the resulting risk is very low versus the cost outlay in order to do that, which is not the correct way from a moral standpoint to handle it, but it is a business decision. So in order to help prompt the businesses to boost their security posture. This is an amendment to the Privacy Act, which hopefully will be passed sooner than later. I think it makes absolute, complete sense. And this is actually the minimum of $50. So it's going to be either $50 million or three times the value of the benefit obtained through the misuse of the data or 30% of a company's adjusted turnover in the relevant period. The fine would be whichever is the highest. Now, one other thing that the article notes... That as far as um, the penalties for the, the cyber extorters, one proposal is that a new offense for cyber extortion would carry a maximum 10 years imprisonment. So you want to also de-incentivize as much as possible those committing the act. I'm not a lawyer, yet cybersecurity and privacy have significant legal tie-ins. And I believe that it's important for us as security professionals to understand aspects of law and how law works with regards to security and privacy. So this is why this article from Vital Law caught my attention and I wanted to share it here. Three patients of Labette County Medical Center who alleged that their personally identifiable information and personal health information were stolen when Labette's computer system was hacked lack standing to bring those claims because they have failed to allege that they suffered harm as a result of the security breach, according to the federal district court in Kansas. So now this the federal court has remanded the case back to state court rather than our ordering dismissal. So as far as standing goes, the way I understand standing is that you actually have to have a leg to stand on, I guess. That's the way I see it. Your, your case has to have merit in order for it to proceed. A lot of times cases are assumed to be adjudicated, if that's the correct word, in favor of the party that is being sued because the other side lacks standing. But I don't think that that's actually the case because the case is never actually heard. We saw this in many cases with the federal election and allegations of possible fraud. So the idea of standing has been in the news in the fairly recent history and I completely get it and understand it. I think it's fascinating. And here's the here are some of the reasons why or the reasons why that the court decided that there wasn't standing. One component of standing is that the plaintiff must suffer an in injury in fact. The patients alleged that their names plus one or additional piece of information, such as social security number, was stolen, but it didn't provide the particular information that each patient alleged to have been taken for each of them. So this is more conjecture and speculation. The patients alleged six potential sources for injury. I won't read all of these. The first one was $500 in bank fees. The other ones lack standing, but the bank fees actually did have standings apparently according to the f- court since but they but they could not sufficiently allege that the bank fees they incurred were su- su- sufficiently traceable to the to the Lebet conduct so the fees were actually true they did exist but they couldn't trace them back to this particular instance. And then finally, about as far as future injury, the patients alleged that they were risk of future harm from fraud, identity theft, phishing, and so on. But the court noted that without actual misuse of stolen information, in other words, it doesn't seem like that there's been any proof that this information has been used, many courts have held that plaintiffs lack standing to bring claims based on the fear of future injury. So an interesting article, again, I think that those of us involved with cybersecurity and privacy should have a basic understanding of how the law works, including the concept of standing or lack thereof. From the Hacker News, a 22-year-old vulnerability reported in widely used SQLite database library. Yes, I said that correctly, 22-year-old vulnerability. A high-severity vulnerability has been disclosed in the SQLite database library, which was introduced by as part of a code change dating all the way back to October 2020. This, according to the Hacker News, it could enable attackers to crash or control programs. This is CVE-2022-35737. It affects SQLite versions 1.0.12 through 3.39.1 and has been fixed apparently in 3.39.2 which was released of 20 of July 21st of this year. Now the interesting thing about this is This is a quote from the article. The vulnerability is also an example of a scenario that was once deemed impractical decades ago, allocating one gigabyte strings as input rendered feasible with the advent of 64-bit computing. So think about that for a moment. Some things that were just not possible back in the day are now possible because of the increase in the technology capacity of systems and programs and so forth. That's interesting and can be a little bit disturbing in the fact that this may have been found many, many years ago, but just discounted. Somebody might have found it and said, well, this is irrelevant because there's no way that you could actually have this long of a string. So I would submit that probably the best approach to these sorts of potential vulnerabilities, if in in fact it was actually discovered many years ago, that's just conjecture on my part is that if there's a chance of in the future that it could possibly be exploited, that that should at the very least be taken into consideration. You know, we're going to see that, they always say, way in the future with um, information that was encrypted many years earlier, because at some point in time, there's going to be systems that are so powerful that can just brute force them. So it's not just today, it's temporal. could be in the future that the vulnerability could be exploited. Also from the Hacker News, cybercriminals use 2POS malware to steal details of over 167,000 credit cards. These have been obviously stolen from payment terminals. This could net the operators as much as $334 million by selling them on underground forums. The article notes that the significant portion of attacks aimed at getting this sort of information, credit card payment information, is from... JavaScript sniffers such as web skimmers and other items. POS malware continues to be an ongoing, if maybe not less popular, threat. The two variants here are Treasure Hunter and its advanced successor, Magic POS. They are both designed to brute force their way into a POS terminal or, or alternatively purchase initial access from other parties known as initial access brokers, followed by extracting payment card information from the system's memory and forwarding it to a remote server. You remember... This was something that was used in the target attack many, many years ago. That was one of the watershed um, large hacks back in the day. So magic POS first came to light in early 2017, mainly affecting businesses across the United States and Canada. But the other one treasure hunter or treasure hunt has been chronicled since 2014 and its source code suffered a leak in 2018. Now the, Identity of the criminal actors behind this is not known, and it's currently not clear if the pilfered data has already been sold for monetary games by the group. Most of the stolen cards are said to have been issued by banks in the United States, Puerto Rico, Peru, Panama, the UK, Canada, France, Poland, Norway, and Costa Rica. And finally, a blog post from the National Association of Corporate Directors. Recently, Lloyd's of London issued a bulletin that will require its insurer groups to separate state-backed cyber attacks from standalone cyber insurance policies. Starting in March 2023, when coverage begins or renews, Lloyd's global syndicates must exclude attacks involving state actors and policies that protect against physical and digital damage caused by hacks. We've talked about this before there's a couple of questions here. The first one that the the blog post brings up is, is the, if the insurance industry stops covering breaches caused by nation states, and obviously a significant amount of those come from that source, where does this leave companies? And further, what if you can't determine the source of the breach? Now, companies nowadays, they have a cyber insurance policy to defer some of the risk and damage from a cyber breach, risk transference. But you're going to have businesses now start to think, well, if this major component is not being covered, why should I even need cyber insurance to to begin with? But also, how do you attribute this to a nation state actor? We know that people can obfuscate their source. One example is the Tor network, just going through it. It's very hard to find the source going that route. The article also notes the problem of using initial access brokers, which we just talked about in the last article. They call, they refer to this here as crowdsourced hacking, where you can find threat actors on marketplaces to conduct parts of the attack. So you never know really which attack came from where. So the blogger, James Turgill, he is the vice president of cybersecurity strategy and board relations at Optiv. Concludes that given the gray area around attribution, there may be a reckoning around the corner for the insurance sector, especially if other providers such as Lloyd's attempt to unburden themselves from the financial responsibility of state-sponsored attacks. I completely agree here, and I completely agree with his last statement. Regardless of what happens with the cyber insurance market, having a solid cyber program is important to weather any storm. That's why enterprises should continue to focus on forging resilient environments that start with risk management. I'm going to have some thoughts on risk management in 30 seconds. About 15 or 16 years ago, I decided that I wanted to go back to college to pursue a master's in information security mainly because there were some positions that I wanted to apply for. I noticed that required a master's. Now, at this point in time, I'm moving further up the chain in management. I wanted to get to potentially a corporate level or board level. And the plain fact is that there are just some concepts and some things that a master's is required. I'm not saying that it's definitely something that is a necessity in the sense of skill set, but there has to be some measuring sticks for these sorts of positions. And a master's is one of them. I actually got shut out from a position that I really wanted to apply for because I didn't have a master's and I decided I'm not going to be shut out again. I decided to go for information security project management. I did that because I had recently at the time just gotten my CISSP. Now, in the CISSP, we do cover risk management, but it was my courses for information systems project management that really opened up risk management for me. I loved the PMBOK, the Project Management Body of Knowledge. If you're not familiar with that and you're interested in project management, you should become familiar with it. Of course, there are different strategies now. Back then, we're talking... Like I said, 15 years plus or minus ago, uh, the waterfall method was the predominant method for most projects, even in IT. You, You had agile for some software projects. We see agile more now. But regardless, a lot of the concepts still hold true today. Now, the PMBOK talks about three strategies for dealing with risks that they term negative risks or threats. The first one is to avoid. And avoid is very simple. Whatever is the item that is causing that risk, remove it. So, for example, you have a server that's storing confidential information, but you have no business need to store that confidential information anymore. So you just get rid of the information. You have now avoided the risk by by discontinuing the system that has that threat footprint that then leads to the risk. The second one, according to the pin box, is transfer. And this is what we just talked about with regards to cyber insurance. So you're transferring the risk of, at the very least here, the risk of payment with regards to a breach. Now, something is important with cyber insurance is that if your firm suffers a breach and you have to pay out, well, cyber insurance will help with that, but it won't help you with the reputational risk. You still own that because you still own The responsibility for protecting the information, you just now can pay it and maybe not have it as a business ending event. The third item is mitigate. And mitigate in information security, we talk about that a lot with regards to implementing controls. I have talked about that many times on this podcast. You need to implement controls in order to mitigate risks that are identified and you track that on a risk register and that's how you manage risk. Now, there's a fourth in information security, and that's accept. it is a valid, valid way to treat risk because sometimes the cost of doing business is worth taking the risk. Now, we saw that in an earlier article, remember, in the Optus incident where it was brought to light to a lot of us, myself included, that the maximum penalty was 2.2 million Australian dollars. And some saw that as a cost of doing business. And so what did they do? They accepted the risk because they figured, well, we can just deal with this now. But now that the risk of payout is much higher or will be much higher, now they may change their risk mitigation strategy towards something different than accept. I would hope that they would, that as the last article noted, that they would increase their information security programs and posture. I often joke or half joke, because I think that some do try to employ this strategy, that there is a fifth, and that is to ignore. And that's why I liked that the last article came from the NACD, because this is a board responsibility, information security and cyber risk. Most boards, I think, recognize that today. But that's part of the reason why I say many times on this podcast that one of the primary duties, if not the primary duty of a, of a chief information security officer or a virtual CISO, is to provide sufficient, complete, enough information on the threat environment and potential controls so that the C-suite and the board of directors can make risk-informed decisions because ultimately it is their responsibility on how they treat the risk. Now, some people tend to Poo poo risk management. And I disagree with that. Information security is all about risk management. You can never have an instance where you're completely risk free. You can never have an instance where you're completely dealing with 100% risk. Both extremes don't work. You have to find that common point in the middle because too many times people go one way or the other. I often use, you can picture this in your mind. I use a graph where there's an intersection point that that information security risk will go up as you increase controls, but accessibility and workability will go down. So you have to find where that line intersects risk management to where controls and accessibility meet. That's the sweet spot. That's really if you boil information security risk management down, that's what it boils down to. So if you're interested in risk management for information security, I would encourage you to pursue it further. And that's it for today. Coming up next week on Tuesday, we have a great talk with Christian Espinosa. He is the author of The Smartest Person in the Room, The Root Cause for a New Solution for Cybersecurity. I'd encourage you to listen to that. It's a fascinating discussion. And then Wednesday, we continue our feature series from the Retreat Conference from Montreat College back in September, where we have Dan Bradley. He's a senior associate general counsel at Global Payments and a former federal prosecutor. He's going to discuss about privacy regulations, both for financial institutions and small and mid-sized businesses, and including the importance of frameworks. So hope you can join us for those episodes. And until then, stay secure.